COVID has had a big impact on the third sector. On the one hand, many charities and social enterprises have faced major financial and organisational challenges. On the other, many have had to pivot their offer and ways of working to respond to the crisis and its impact. At the RSA, we've been exploring how learning and adaptation during the pandemic can help build a bridge to the future. So how has and how should COVID reshape the not-for-profit sector? Who better to discuss this with than one of our most innovative, thoughtful and passionate third sector leaders? This is Bridges to the Future, the Big Ideas podcast, brought to you by the RSA with your host, Matthew Taylor. I'm delighted to be joined by an old friend of mine. I think I could call you an old friend, Alex. Alex Fox, the CEO of Shared Lives Plus, a high-profile advisor and commentator on third sector issues, and the author of a joint NCVO-RSA report, Meeting as Equals, Creating Asset-Based Charities Which Have a Real Impact. So, Alex, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Now, let's start with Shared Lives Plus, not just because that's your day job, and I want people listening to know who you are and also that you're talking from real expertise. But also I think that what Shared Lives Plus is, what it does, its strengths, the challenges you've faced have all been incredibly important in shaping your view about the future of the third sector. So tell us about Shared Lives Plus first, Alex. Sure. Shared Lives Plus is a membership network right across the UK, and we support people and organisations who bring some very different and also very effective ways of supporting people to about 15,000 people now. So Shared Lives is a support model in which there are about 10,000 shared life carers across the country. They've all been through a really rigorous recruitment and approval process, and then they're matched with an adult who needs support. So if you became a shared life carer for your local shared lives organization, uh, you'd be introduced to somebody with a learning disability or a mental health problem or dementia or some other kind of support need. And when you found a good match, and that means both you think it's a good match and that person does as well, that person either comes to live with you and lives as part of your household, as part of your family life, or they come and visit you regularly rather than, say, visiting a day centre for support. So it's a model which adult services is quite unusual because it combines regulated care. So as a shared life carer, you're trained and you're paid and you're working under the auspices of a local organisation. But it's also something very personal. If you go and sit in a shared lives carer's kitchen, it's like my your kitchen. It's It's ordinary family life with, you know, all the joy and messiness and ups and downs of family life. And so that's one of the models that we support. It's the biggest one for us. We also support a model called HomeShare, which is smaller in the UK, although bigger globally, which again is about bringing people together into supportive households. So for HomeShare, that usually means an older person brought together with a younger person who needs somewhere affordable to live. The younger person moves in and provides a bit of help or companionship. The older person actually is often providing companionship as well because there's plenty of isolated younger people as well as older people. So they help each other out rather than the older person, say, looking for a traditional service to support them. And more recently, actually during the pandemic, we've been working with colleagues in Australia and the Department for Education to bring 
a third model, this time a model which is based around supporting children and families to the UK, and that's called Family by Family, in which a family who have been through trouble or difficulty and survived are matched up with a family who are currently going through some kind of similar challenges. So our models are all about connecting people together into really human relationships, but putting just enough support and structure around those relationships to make sure that they're safe and they're consistent. And we think that that's an approach which many more charities and public services could learn from. Yeah, so what's always fascinated me about your model is this combination of professionalism in the sense that people are paid, as you say, and they are trained and you have the regulatory framework around it. But yet at the heart of it is the notion of reciprocity. And in all the kind of case studies you give, and I'm going to ask you, Alex, just to give us a couple of examples of this work in practice. The emphasis is always on the kind of non-monetary benefits, as it were, that what people get out of it, the way in which they feel that they're bringing somebody in has really enhanced their own family. Give us a couple of examples, Alex. Yeah, so my colleague Meg, who works in our team now, spent a number of years living in hospitals with really significant mental health problems, always says that she met lots of people within those those hospital systems who did care, but they were working shifts. And as she said, they had to sort of switch her off when they went home. They couldn't have that kind of deeper relationship. And she felt like she was a patient. You know, she was somebody with a large file of problems attached to her. So she was matched with a shared life carer called Haley when she was medically well enough to leave the hospital, but she didn't really have anywhere to go. She she didn't have a family environment to return to. Uh, so she was ready for the community in the sort of the jargon, but the, there wasn't a community waiting for her. She was going to have to build it from the ground up. So the support that she got when she lived with Haley was practical. It was, you know, the, the more formal support there if, if it was needed, if she became unwell, but it was largely social. She always said in that period, she made friends, she went on adventures, and now she lives in her own place. But she's still got that supportive relationship with Haley, which has really kept her going during lockdown. So that's an example of somebody moving in with their shared life carer. There are also people who visit their shared life carer. So Harold, who, who had dementia, visited a shared life carer called Karen, which was a way of Harold's daughter getting a break from her unpaid caring. And Lynn, his daughter, had said that she was unhappy with the kind of breaks that she was offered because they usually meant Harold going into a care home and that really wasn't working for him and that meant it wasn't working for her either. So being matched with Karen was much more like a family visit. It was familiar to Harold. He looked forward to it and that meant that Lynn had the peace of mind for a break. So as you say, it's combining the professionalism of people you can have real confidence in but also doing something that feels very personal. And if you talk to people in Shared Lives about what the people achieve, they will often talk much more about what people achieve than what they need. And they just take very kind of pragmatic approaches to supporting people. So for instance, I've talked to someone who says, yeah, the person who lives with us has has learned to ride a bike for the first time in his 50s. And it was my kids that taught him. That's not something you could contract for, or you couldn't, you know, really risk assess for it in a traditional service, but it's just getting on with ordinary life. So that's going to take us, I think, to this notion of asset-based charities, which I want to come to in a second. But before we do that, Alex, you've been doing this for many years. I think it's a brilliant model. But getting it to spread, getting places to take up, getting local authorities to take it up has been a battle for you. 
Tell us about the challenges that have been involved in scaling up the shared lives model. First of all, it's people hearing about it. So certainly when I joined this organisation over 10 years ago now, I was just struck that even though I'd worked in the sector, I hadn't really heard of this model. And it was obvious to me that it was offering something very different that was working much, much better for some people than other more widely known and often more expensive models. So first of all, it's helping something that's currently small to get a foothold in this very big, often very messy sort of public service world, which is constantly under pressure and in crisis and you know suffering from funding cuts. And then it's getting people to take smaller models seriously. So to really understand the value, but also to, to get ambitious about scale. So a lot of our focus has been on how can we scale up our shared lives and home share. And scaling up those models is a huge challenge on its own. But it's also achieving that isn't enough on its own. So we have over the last 10 years worked with the sector and the 150 shared lives organisations around the UK are reaching around 5,000 more people than they were. So, you know, there's been some significant growth. They are in every area now. You probably have a shared lives scheme in your area, even if you don't know about it. But we were finding that there were limits to how much you could grow a model like Shared Lives in a system that just saw it as too radically different to take seriously. So in the last few years, we've also spent a lot of our time building partnerships and alliances with other like-minded organisations and approaches, which all tend to share the same kind of values, in order that we might collectively create more change than we could on our own. And we've also found that actually even that's not enough. What we really need is for the systems that we're working in to completely realign themselves with a different set of values. And as you said, those are often described as asset-based or strengths-based values. So that's our key challenge. As a relatively small set of organisations doing things very differently, how do we realign the world around ourselves rather than feeling like we have to mangle ourselves to fit a, a world in which things are often feeling quite broken. So in your report that we've published with NCVO Meeting as Equals, there's quite a lot there about what's happened over the last year, the way in which charities have had to respond, or some of them have responded to COVID. Also, the issues about inequality, which COVID has surfaced, reinforced by the Black Lives Matter moment in the middle of the crisis. But before we kind of get into that, I think you've been arguing well before before we'd even heard of COVID that in many ways the third sector was facing a kind of existential crisis. It was facing a legitimacy crisis. What did you see as being the kind of really big issues the third sector needed to face up to even before COVID came along? There was a lot of focus before COVID on some very high profile scandals and, and failures in the charity sector around inequalities, around bullying, around overseas organisations. So there were some real reputational risks. There's also been some challenges around public trust in charities and particularly people having a focus on the pay of some senior executives within the, the sector, for instance. So I think as a sector, we probably felt that we were 
under attack and sometimes somewhat unfairly. You know, there are tens of thousands of charities out there. Most of them are tiny. They do incredible work with tiny resources and people are either doing that as volunteers or on pay, which is really very modest compared to the public sector, let alone the private sector. So I think as a sector, there was a certain defensiveness in our reaction to you know what was justifiably seen in some ways as as some charity bashing but i think that got in the way of us engaging properly with the issues that actually are real and in my view particularly in the part of the sector that we work in where there are some really large organizations delivering public service contracts there was some real success during the years in which public service contracts were well funded. So some organisations really managing to scale what they did, do it, providing really high quality support within those contracts. But during austerity, when those budgets then reduced, I think there has been a sense that some of the things which made our organisations, our sector's organisations unique, were starting to get a little bit lost. And I wasn't convinced that we were addressing that fully enough. So what I mean by that is that people expect charities and community organisations to feel really grounded in the community, to feel really human. And that's why the paper's called Meeting as Equals, to have this sense that even if you're a large organisation, that you should be able to meet people on their terms and in a way that is driving the kinds of social changes that we're calling for. And I wasn't convinced we were always doing that. And that's what I tried to look at in the paper is organisations which were addressing those issues head on, even during or sometimes because of the pandemic. So let's get to the heart of this bit of jargon that I recognise, but let's assume that many people listening won't know what it means. We talk about asset-based, strength-based approach. Tell us what that means and tell us what the kind of key characteristics of a charity which is decided or a social enterprise that's decided to work in an asset-based way would be. Yeah, it's an unhelpful term really for the UK. I think it's, it's a North American term, but one that's become sort of the one that's used most frequently. So asset-based really means looking for people's strengths, their skills, their potential, not just looking for their needs and their problems. And for me, one of the key problems we have within our public service and charity culture is that we are often really focused on need and problems and crisis. And we need to be because that's often, you know, the the reason why somebody is looking for support, that there is an issue there. But if we concentrate exclusively on what people need, then we lose sight of what they might be able to do and their capacity and their potential. And we tend, therefore, to come up with solutions to their problems which feel like professionals trying to fix needy or vulnerable people or needy or vulnerable communities. And generally, it doesn't work because it doesn't give people the opportunity to find their own solutions and to build their own strengths and capacity. So an asset-based approach is about looking for what people can do, not just for what they can't, and then walking alongside people, being there with them rather than necessarily trying to lead them, being willing to be led by them in building their own solutions. Well, that sounds very positive, but there's hard edges to this, Alex, aren't there? And particularly in relation to power and governance, because if you're going to have an asset-based approach, if you're going to treat the people that the charity is trying to help as equals, 
Well, then that means giving them a voice. That means sharing power or even handing over power to them. And that's where this becomes more challenging, I think. Isn't that right? Yeah, I think everybody broadly agrees that empowering people is a good thing, you know, that people taking charge of their own lives and their own support is is a good thing. But as you say, actually, if you follow that idea through to its conclusion, you have to start applying it to organisations, which in some cases have become quite bureaucratic. They have vast concentrations of power in small groups of people who are sometimes quite distant from the people that they're there to support. So the organisations which really embrace this idea are those which don't just consult with people or listen to them. They're genuinely willing to be led by um, people in communities. And there are two key groups of people, I think. The people who rely most on charities and services and the people who are most likely to be excluded or poorly served by those charities and services. And the starting process, I think, for any kind of asset-based thinking is what's sometimes called co-production or co-design. The idea of starting out with a blank piece of paper, having a conversation with those groups of people and a conversation which is about what does a good life look like to you and how could we get there together rather than how might we improve our services, for instance, which is a more common conversation to have. And I think one of the things you argue or implicitly argue in the pamphlet, which, by the way, is available on the RSA website, obviously, there's no data or evidence to support this at this stage, it would be too early. But I think you want to say that charities that have this kind of asset based approach, were more able to pivot during COVID, because the question they asked themselves was not, how can the organisation survive? But what is it the people that we are here in service of need us now to do? And Share with us the example of Slung Low, because I think that's an exemplary account of an organization so close to the community that it absolutely changed what it did when the crisis started, but in a very powerful way. Yeah, so Slung Low is a theatre company in Leeds, community theatre company, and it was already perhaps unusual in some ways. It shared its venue with, I think, the oldest working man's club in the the country in a very um, working class area of South Leeds. It was already making real efforts to engage with the community. But when the pandemic hit, they were really willing to have that conversation. So one of the things they did is is just they stuck letters through the nearest 100 or 200 doors to their base and said, we're here, we have a van, we've got some people, we've got some resources, what is it you want? And what came out of that was a food bank. So they're a theatre company that became a food bank. And one of the things that really struck me about Al Lane, who co-founded that and led that change, was that he doesn't particularly enjoy running a food bank, I think. I think he's quite, you know, this wasn't his dream. His dream was theatre. But he recognised that his dream to put on community theatre isn't that relevant to people who are hungry and haven't got the food they need. So being willing to actually not just sort of ask, but then to be led by what people really wanted was the key to their transformation. And they have along the way done some really interesting arts and theatre work as well, you know, dealing with some of the constrictions of the pandemic. So I'm sure that their relationship with that community will be far, far stronger than if they just stuck to their original kind of core mission. And this shift is one of the things that I've heard about during COVID and something that a number of people have 
have said in events that the RSA has hosted with various people is that there has been a shift in the nature of the relationship between the state and the third sector during COVID because of the scale of the crisis and the way in which it kept changing. A move from procurement based upon incredibly detailed specifications and kind of competition on the basis of price to a slightly more trusting relationship in which local authorities in particular had to get money out to the third sector and simply trust them to meet the needs of their communities. Now, I've heard that a lot. I don't know if you've, have you heard that, Alex? Is it overstated? And if it's true, is there any reason to hope that that might continue into the future, that more agile, more trusting way for the state to engage the third sector? I've certainly seen some councils like Leeds, for instance, I think probably York and others, where they already had that approach to to some extent to working with communities and community organisations. And they really went for it during the pandemic in the way that you describe, in a way which is incredibly positive. I think for other areas where those conditions and those relationships weren't really there to begin with, some have actually retreated more into command and control. And certainly during the height of a crisis, there probably is a moment when command and control feels pretty necessary. But it can be a bit seductive and difficult to let go of once that crisis moment has passed. So I think it is quite a mixed picture. And there is, as you say, a a huge opportunity Because we have seen in some cases that rules which were assumed to be set in stone, people just really kind of agreed to ignore them on the basis that we were in a crisis and we needed to do things really rapidly and very differently. And the sky didn't fall in. So I think being able to to hold on to that moment and recognising that where people had that much more equal relationship, that good things happened, is the opportunity. The risk is that we will, as we sort of move back into a period of more normality plus huge economic challenge, that we lose all of those gains and they become the memory of when you know, we could just do things differently. But one of the glimmers of hope and also the slight frustrations for me is we've seen this huge outpouring of hundreds of thousands of people wanting to volunteer or just wanting to help and wanting to connect with their neighbours, sometimes you know, just through WhatsApp groups on their street as well as through things like the NHS Responders Scheme. We, as a sector, weren't always able to respond to that desire to help. And for me, that's a good illustration both of the potential of asset-based approaches. There is abundance out there. And also of how much work we've got to do to create organisations which can genuinely respond to people on their own terms when there is that desire for people to do things for each other and they maybe need a little bit of help and connection to do it but they don't necessarily want an organization to come in and take over and the ideas you're talking about alex these aren't just ideas for new cutting edge very small charities there are other bigger more established charities that are trying to do things differently you describe for example men caps desire to change and there are kind of certain elements of that there is the empowerment of service users but there's also devolving more power to the front line trusting staff themselves is an element of that tell us a bit about what men camp's been trying to do 
Yeah, and uh, you know, Mencap's a huge organisation, and sometimes there is a debate set up or a sort of false dichotomy set up between small charities generally seen as good and sometimes large charities seen as bad. And I was really interested in how can really large organisations like Mencap actually draw on these ideas of meeting as equals. So Mencap, as you say, is attempting a, a cultural change for I think eight thousand staff, which is trying to move decision-making power away from the centre towards its front line and ultimately the people and communities it serves, which involves having real clarity about mission, what everybody's there to do, and also ways of working, the values of the organisation, how people are expected to behave, and then being able to give people more freedom to take decisions once those things are clear. And Mencap's also got an interest in self-organizing teams, self-managing teams. And there are a number of initiatives. The most famous is a Dutch one called Bootsorg, which I've probably pronounced horribly wrongly, which supports 60 or 70,000 people with dementia. So it's a large scale support operation, but it does that through self-organizing community-based teams, which work within quite a distinct structure and which recruit people who can work in that way. So they make all of the decisions at the local level, but they have the backup of really good data collection outcomes, measuring a payment system so that they can have the structure around them without having the constrictions that sometimes come with that kind of bureaucracy. And I know that RSA, you've been working with Helen Sanderson and you know models which are embracing that idea of, of self-managing teams, which to me feels like it could be the missing link, as it were, between where we are now with organisations which have really scaled and where we need to be, which I don't think is for these organisations to disappear or you know, to be broken up necessarily. I think it's about them being able to work in a much more devolved way. Yeah, and the founder of Burt's Organ, driving force behind this model is a guy called Joster Block. And if anyone's interested in in the Berksog model, you can see a lecture by Joster Block if you go to the RSA website. You know, it's a fascinating lecture that he gave. And I remember, I remember Alex, a couple of critical moments as he's explaining this kind of model, this non-hierarchical model to people. And two questions that stuck in my mind. Somebody, I think, said, well, but what do you do about people who behave badly in a system which is so based on trust, where you have coaches rather than managers? And he said, well, you know, if you want to behave badly, you'd probably go into the city. If all you're into is kind of self-enrichment or aggrandizement, you probably wouldn't become a social, become a social care. I thought that was amusing. But perhaps a more telling point he made was that he said that people have only got a certain amount of bandwidth. And he said he wanted his domiciliary workers to put nearly all their energy into their relationship with the client and to minimize the amount of energy that was used engaging with the system that employed them. And I remember watching public sector workers, UK public sector workers in that event, almost with their head in their hands as they contrasted what he was describing with how it can often feel for third sector and public sector people in this country, which is that you have to spend an enormous amount of energy dealing with the dysfunctional nature of the system. And only a certain amount is then left over for the reason you did the work in the first place, which is to help your fellow human beings. And that takes me, I think, to the kind of question, Alex, that your report, the thing nagged away at me. And when I read about what MenCap has done, I read about some of the other case studies that you gave. What I felt was that these were organizations with brilliant, inspirational, determined leaders, leaders who thought very, very deeply about what they did, as well as being 
you know, organizationally effective. And even then, in a couple of the examples you give, you recognize that the change to this more asset-based approach, the kind of transfer of power, the devolution of power, a different quality of conversation isn't easy. And what that put me in mind of was kind of progressive education. So I, broadly speaking, prefer progressive, child-centered, project-based education methods to more traditional kind of chalk and talk knowledge-based methods. But the conclusion I've had to come to over many years is that those progressive education methods are much more demanding on teachers. And that's why it's often very difficult to scale them. Because if you have a kind of teaching workforce with a kind of variety of motivations and talents, yes, progressive education is great for the most energetic and the most talented, the most committed. But for your average teacher on a kind of wet Tuesday in the East Midlands or something... It probably is that the more traditional ways of teaching are more reliable. They're less risky. They're less likely to go wrong. So is it the same, do you think, Alex, when it comes to asset-based charity? Is it that the way that you want charities to work relies upon a quality of leadership, which is only ever going to be present in a minority of organization? That model of inspirational leadership is, is essential certainly at the moment, because we have organisations which tend to concentrate power in their leaders. And therefore, it stands to reason that you need inspirational leaders who are willing to share that power and give it away, which not many leaders are actually willing to do. People talk about it, but they don't do it. So one of the solutions to that is, as we've been talking about, to change structures of where power lies so that The positive side of that then is that you're not so reliant on a single inspirational leader. But as you say, you are then much more reliant on leadership and really quite exceptional leadership at lots of different levels from lots of different people. But those people are out there. And I think the the challenge then is to recruit very differently. So if you look at the processes of shared lives, for instance, which I think make it successful and make it safe, you know, the, the Care Quality Commission always says it performs better than other models of regulated care, despite it looking as if it has all this freedom or autonomy in it. But one of the things that happens very differently is that our sector spends a very long time recruiting people, recruits them in a much more relational way and recruits them for their values. And I think that too often we recruit people too quickly and then spend a lot of that bandwidth dealing with the issues that come either with people who aren't well suited to the roles or people who just aren't great communicators. And then having recruited the right people, you then have the the opportunity to create those more autonomous roles, which in turn attract good people as well. And you get that kind of virtuous circle, whereas at the moment we often have a bit of a vicious circle where recruiting people quickly to low status, low pay roles, which we don't really trust them to do, and where those roles then become constricted and dehumanized and demoralizing. And we have that kind of vicious circle. So I think the the core to this is it's not a kind of bureaucratic reform. It's not an organizational restructure or certainly not on its own. I think the starting point is what do we want the relationships to look like at every level of this organization? And how do we want people to behave? And that reforming the core support relationship between the whether it's a charity worker or a public service worker or an education or any other field, having a really clear idea of what we want that relationship to look like. And then building organisations and structures which enable us to find people who can have that relationship and which allow them to have that relationship. That feels like the key challenge 
for our sector. And that sort of comes to questions about the the system. Is it just the system which gets in our way? And we often talk as if there is a system out there and we have good people, but they can't consistently do good things because we're all working within this broken system. I wrote a book a couple of years ago, the subtitle of which was Escaping the Invisible Asylum. And the reason I called it that is because I came to the, the suspicion that maybe actually we were creating this system and maintaining it ourselves through the choices we were making every day. And that actually there was never going to be some uh, kind of great intervention which changed this system from outside. All that was going to happen or not happen was that we were going to collectively decide to behave differently. And I think we can do that. You know, I think we've shown we can do it during the pandemic. And if more of us had the belief that we can do that, I think great things would happen. And this loops around, doesn't it, Alex, to the issue of governance? I think a lot of third sector governance is very problematic. And and I wonder whether, you know, the link here is that if you bring citizens, service users, communities into governance, not only will they demand that things are different, but also they'll give you a license to take risks. They'll give you a license to do things differently. I think very often governance bodies are quite a long way away from the day-to-day, and then they tend to be risk-averse. And then when you're going through a process of change, if you go through that inevitable kind of U-shape, which happens with change, which is that things may get worse, they may feel more unstable, they may feel more problematic before they start to improve. If you want your governance bodies to stick with you, it is really important to have the user voice there, isn't it? Yeah, and at every level. So sometimes organisations try to bring in some sort of, quote, user representatives onto their board or at the top level, but they haven't really done anything to reform the way that decisions are taken, and the rest of the organisation. So that becomes a bit dispiriting. What we really need to be doing is looking at the diversity in every sense of the people working in charities at every level, building diversity from the ground up as well as from the top down. And you know, part of that diversity is obviously the, the ethnic diversity, gender diversity. It's also class diversity. And I think one of the things that we haven't fully addressed within the charity sector is that often we have very middle class, not very diverse teams of people working in very diverse communities, which are much less wealthy. And that's the sort of disparity that will always stymie the organisation's mission, because we won't be living our values, we won't be driving and demonstrating the kind of social change that we're calling for. Well, thanks, Alex. It's been great talking with you. The report Meeting as Equals, Creating Asset-Based Charities, which have a real impact, is, as I say, on the RSA website. Just a last question, Alex. Many, I, I suspect, of people who listen to this podcast will be people who are themselves, who work in third sector organizations or who volunteer or are involved in the governance of them. If they wanted to, to explore becoming more asset-based, just give us a kind of couple of practical tips. How might you start that? process even if it's kind of just starting the process of inquiry to ask whether you're doing it right now how would you begin the conversation there's lots of specific actions in the report that a couple i'd draw on is thinking about how we work as much as what we do and a big part of how we work is who is the we so who is involved in the conversations which are about the future of the organization and what it's there for 
And you can make those groups of people much more diverse. But to do that, you have to be willing to go to people where they are. You'll often need to be able to work with organizations which already have a foothold within that community. So being prepared to have those wider conversations on other people's terms rather than your own. And that a really good starting point is that good life question. What does a good life look like to us or around here? And how could we go about doing that, getting there? And then I think in the report, we look at what an asset-based approach might look like right the way through the organization. So I think it's it's important to be clear that you can't do a bit of asset-based thinking or working while the core business sort of trundles on as it was. This is an all or nothing approach. You need to look at every different level of the organization and every different function through an asset-based lens. So a good example, for instance, is the there are sometimes charities which have great campaigning departments which are putting out really positive messages, sometimes you know, involving people with lived experience with messages about empowerment. But if they've got a fundraising department, which is drawing heavily on images of people being needy and vulnerable and poor and kind of all of that negativity, those two things pull against each other. So what does asset-based fundraising look like? And, you know, probably one of the things it looks like is that those messages are designed and delivered much more by people with lived experience. Well, Alex, it's been brilliant talking with you. Thanks for the pamphlet. Thanks for the work that you do. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed the conversation and huge appreciation for all of your support to RSA as well. It's been a big part of our success as an organisation over the last 10 years. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.